Welcome to A Different Way of Traveling. This is a podcast where we discuss travel for persons with disabilities and special needs in South Africa and beyond with our host, Lois Strachan. Join us as we share inspiring stories of people who travel, exciting accessible travel experiences, and showcase service providers who will accommodate those with special needs. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to today's episode of A Different Way of Travelling, a podcast on accessible travel brought to you by Accessible South Africa. I'm your host, Lois Strachan. I just wanted to let you know that I recently published my new book, Pause for Thought, Seeing the World Through the Eyes of a Guide Dog. And it's all about how my guide dog, Fiji, sees the human world. It's available on Amazon or on the order form on my website, loisstrachen.com. Okay, what about today's interview? Today we're chatting to Michael Hinkson about long-distance air travel with a guide dog. And there are some really good reasons why I dove into this topic with Michael specifically, which you'll hear in the interview. So let's get started. Today on A Different Way of Traveling, we are joined by Michael Hinkson, all the way from the United States of America, and we're going to be chatting to him specifically about long-distance travel with a guide dog. How are you doing today, Michael? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm doing well, thank you. It's great to have you with us on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us. You have had a very extensive and very diverse career and talking about travel with a guide dog seems to really only cover a very tiny part of that. But could you just start off by introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us briefly a little about yourself and your story? I've been blind my entire life, um, and I received my first guide dog when I was 14, so that's many years ago. My adult life has been very much involved with traveling because of jobs um, and because of, as time went on, a need to help in advocacy work, as well as other things, which we'll sort of talk about, I'm sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, the, the travel has also included a, a fair amount of long distance travel. My uh, world kind of changed greatly in s- September of 2001, when I was working as the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager for a computer company. My job was Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager we opened our office in the World Trade Center in New York City on the 78th floor of Tower One. <clears throat> and I was in my office along with my fifth guide dog, Roselle, as well as some guests, including David Frank, who was a colleague from our corporate office. We were there when the terrorists attacked the building and uh, we all escaped. 
uh, our guests went and then David and I went down the stairs with Roselle and we got out as well. After that, I became very visible and as I said before, traveled for a variety of different things and it took me to various countries to among other things, help other countries in doing some fundraising for guide dog efforts and blindness efforts, as well as just to motivate people around the world about our stories. So we've been to a number of foreign countries. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've been to an, a number of foreign countries um, and all over the United States as well. And I continue to travel today, although travel for the past year has been low because of the pandemic. Of course, and your experiences um, in that coming out of the World Trade Center, I felt you covered fantastically and a very harrowing experience, but you, you portrayed it so well in the book Thunderdog, which I've finished reading a little while back. And it's a book that is very definitely worth reading if people haven't done so. And it's available wherever books are sold in, in a variety of languages. So people can get Thunderdog uh, wherever they wish. That's great to know. Thank you. It's available in print and it's available from bookshare.org uh, and on-demand Braille. And it's also available in audio form as well from Audible and other places. I love the fact that nowadays we have so many options when it comes to books for us to read as, as those with visual impairments. Sure. Let's turn back to travel. So you mentioned that you had the opportunity to travel extensively through your work and certainly after your experiences at the World Trade Center. Can you give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of what long distance travel you and Rizal got to do and perhaps the, the travel you've subsequently done with your other guide dogs? Of course, it depends on what you mean by long distance. So. <laughs> Um, traveling from one part of the United States to the other can take on a nonstop flight, say from here to New York, I live in California, can be five to six hours, which is fairly long distance. Um, if we stop in the middle, which we often do because flights are not always direct from the airport that I travel from, <clears throat> then it can be eight, 10 and 12 hours. So even traveling in the United States, I get to help my guide dogs adjust to the concept of long distance travel. But we've also traveled to New Zealand, to Japan, twice, Korea, the Netherlands, for example, to Ireland. So we've traveled to a number of different countries, which are definitely even more long distance. I suppose that that's very true. The, the difference there is, you know, if you're traveling domestically within the United States, there's obviously complications, there are similar um, issues that may arise, but you don't have the international uh, sort of the borders and, and that side of thing to, to contend with, which is a part that often can be of concern to travel when you're traveling with a guide dog. So you've, you've done a significant amount of long distance travel, both locally and overseas with your dogs. Well, and, and you're right. Certainly, uh, when you travel outside of a country, then you are also dealing with the regulations of the country you're going to. Or if you uh, stop somewhere en route and leave the aircraft, you're 
subject to those regulations as well. So it's very important for anyone who is traveling with a guide dog to make sure that they understand what the rules are anywhere they plan to exit the aircraft. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> in places like New Zealand that don't have rabies, um, or even Japan, for that matter, and certainly in, in Ireland, there are issues and there are regulations, although somewhat the regulations have changed a little bit for guide dogs. But still, you need to do things like make sure that your guide is properly vaccinated and that, that probably in especially rabies-free countries, um, the dog goes uh, through a rabies titers test where a uh, blood test is taken within some length of time before you travel to make sure that the dog's immunization to rabies is sufficient to allow you to, to travel and to uh, make sure that, that from the country standpoint, your dog isn't going to bring rabies into the country. That's probably one of the biggest issues. We have that going to Hawaii here, where again, there is not rabies in Hawaii. And so we are subject even from the mainland to some of those kinds of regulations going to Hawaii. <clears throat> Although again, guide dogs are treated a little bit differently than pets so that it is while still requiring certain tests and so on. Um, if a guide dog is a guide dog, then there are some lessening, if you will, of the regulations or at least easing of the stringent requirements to allow a person to take a dog in. But I think any place you're going to go, especially where there is rabies, it's always good within um, a couple of months of the time you go to get a rabies titers test. And if the titers test demonstrates that the rabies um, vaccination level or antibody level, if we uh, want to equate it to what we have with uh, nowadays in the COVID world where we talk about antibodies all the time, if the antibody level um, or the titers test is not sufficient, then get your dog another rabies vaccination, even if it hasn't been the full length of time between the time that uh, you get a, a rabies vaccination for your dog and the next time. Nowadays, most countries accept the three-year rabies vaccinations, but if the titers test proves low, then get another shot for the dog in order to be able to take your dog. And that will certainly increase. And you may have uh, the titers level and you may have to have a second titers test to demonstrate that, but still do it. Um, I have a couple of times without being too concerned, <clears throat> knowing that it was like two months, two years before um, out of three that I got my dog vaccinated, I went and got another rabies vaccination. And then I did the first rabies titers test. And of course, we were well above the minimum necessary. But the reality is, and bottom line is that there are going to be rules that we're going to have to accept because not all of us have all of the same rules. And when we go to someone else's country, we're a guest. We need to abide by their rules. It doesn't matter what our rules are in our country. It matters what the rules are where we're going. And it's only reasonable to make sure that we understand what those rules are and to make sure that we follow the rules and regulations as we work toward going to those countries. I think that's a very important point because I think often maybe, you know, there's a risk of thinking, oh, it must be okay because I've taken the shots that my dog needs in my home country, but it might not be the same in the country that you're going to. Let's take a step back then and kind of look in a little more detail 
at the process that you follow when traveling with your dog. What do you do before the trip? What is the kind of, obviously, the research and that type of thing? What needs to happen as you start to plan traveling with a guide dog? Well, I think it's very important that we all know our dogs well. And I also think that we need to not introduce stress into their lives at any time more than necessary. And why do I say that? Well, I have been, um, I, I monitor a number of guide dog lists and I hear how people, when they go on flights, they constantly have to make sure that where, where they're changing airplanes, they take their dogs to a relieving station or outside to get the dog relieved and things like that. Um, I hear that so often, I have to start to ask what they're doing before they fly to truly prepare. Now, some dogs may have health issues, but I think most of our guides in reality can, for example, go quite a long time between relievings if we work and do things the right way. That is to say this. Last week, for example, I traveled across the country, well, to the Midwest, to Iowa from California. The first time I traveled since March of 2020, I left my home at six in the morning and I landed in Iowa roughly at about 5.30 Iowa time, which was 3.30 California time. And by the time um, I got out of the airport, it was probably about 4.15 California time. So look at that that time span. It's from 6 in the morning until 4.15 in the afternoon. So that's 10 hours plus. <clears throat> and actually, by the time we got to our hotel, because we didn't stop on the way, it was closer to seven. So it was closer to five. So like 11 hours. Um, the night before I fed my guide dog, Alamo, who is a black lab, he is five. I fed him as I usually do, but I cut down a little bit on the water. I didn't let him drink any more water the rest of the evening. And the next morning, I fed him not as much as I usually do with very little water. And in the span of an hour before we left, I let him go out and relieve. And then I took him out one more time just before we left. <clears throat> Although he didn't do anything the second time, but that's okay. He had a shot at it. And then we went 11 hours going from California to the hotel in Iowa without him needing to go and uh, without him needing to relieve. That's common for us. When I took Roselle to New, New Zealand in 2003, the night before we traveled, I didn't feed her quite as much as I usually do. And I fed her very little, although I put a little bit of kibble, of course, in her stomach. I didn't feed her nearly as much as um, I normally would for her morning feeding. <clears throat> so this is now about eight o'clock in the morning, California time or seven o'clock, California time. Well, about eight o'clock, I'm going to say, I don't remember exactly when I fed her. Now we were going to leave for the airport about noon. Now I took food with me. I had kibbles um, that I could give her on the, on the aircraft, but we left about noon from where we lived in Marin County, North of San Francisco. We went to the airport got on an airplane, flew down to Los Angeles, where we were going to catch a Qantas flight to 
um, to New Zealand. And we, while in Los Angeles waiting between flights, had the opportunity for me to take Roselle out to relieve herself. She did not. And then we got on the airplane and flew the rest of the way to New Zealand. By the time Roselle <clears throat> was able to go outside, it had been about 23 and a half hours since she had last relieved herself. She was not even desperate. She did go out. She did relieve. But she wasn't desperate to do it. Um, I didn't give her much water on the flight. She had some ice. She was fine. She slept. But it's all in making sure of the preparations that, that you do. It is not the same flying long distance as it is flying um, a short hour or two in a country. And the reality is our dogs can go generally a pretty long time if we are using good food that doesn't cause them to need to relieve every few moments. And if we don't fill them full of water, we have an obligation to to do some of these things if we're going to travel long distance. The, the other part about it is um, unless someone is up at all hours of the night taking their dog out when they're at home, they're probably going to go eight or 10 hours while sleeping and so on between the time they take their dogs out anyway. Dogs can go a long time if we control the environment and their diets appropriately. So that's one thing that, that I did. And I did a lot of research to learn about that before I went on my first long distance trip with Roselle. And I was a little nervous about it, but I had been told by other people who had already done it what they did. And the, the bottom line is that we traveled and we were very successful at it. So as I said, 23 and a half hours. I had another situation <clears throat> with my next guide dog, Merrill. It wasn't a long distance flight. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we had to fly from, um, now I don't recall where, but through Texas back to California. And we were uh, late landing in Texas. <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me. We were late landing in Texas. And so um, the problem was that that although they promised to hold the flight because I was late, they didn't. So we ended up having to spend the whole night in Dallas, Texas, at the airport, waiting for um, the next flight that I could take to San Francisco. That was totally unexpected. And I had fed Merrill appropriately the, that morning, and she had some water. But I wasn't able to take her out during the night because we were kind of locked into the airport. I could have gotten out, but I wouldn't have been able to get back into the airport because there weren't any TSA people there. And I wouldn't have had a place to sleep. And as it was, we just slept in the airport. So that was altogether about um, by the time we got to where Merrill was able to go, that was close to 24 hours. And she was a little bit more desperate, but she was able to hold it until we got to a place where she could go. That was unexpected. Um, wasn't a long distance flight, long distance in time, however. Still, um, what I was feeding Merrill caused her not to need to relieve herself very often. Um, I, I like to use sort of high protein foods if we can. And I, as I said, different dogs have different metabolisms and health requirements. But I, I would like to hope that we don't contribute to 
sometimes the metabolisms of dogs doing things that they don't need to do. Um, and I'm not sure that that's always the case. But the bottom line is dogs can hold it if we if we kind of help acclimatize them to that concept. There's almost part of it, though, that it, it, it must sometimes feel a little concerning <clears throat> as the human the partner. With the, 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 the oh, animal. sure. Oh, sure. Um, but I am not as concerned now um, unless something unusual happens when I travel. I know what my dog will do. I know what my dog is capable of. And uh, and I, especially when I'm traveling, I monitor real closely what's going on with him or her, in this case, him. And so I know what the dog is capable of doing. And so uh, if something happens and suddenly there's an accident or whatever, my immediate assumption is that something has changed or there is something that's wrong. And I will go into a much more in-depth monitoring mode anyway to see if it was an aberration or if there's really something that's changing about his health or metabolism. I think that is an important point as well. You know, we need to, and most of us are, we work on a daily basis with our dogs, with our guides, and we should actually have a good sense of their general condition, their general state of well-being on a day-to-day basis. So it shouldn't be very different from what we are doing naturally in monitoring their, their condition. Right. But we also need to um, really look carefully at what we feed our dogs, how, um, what we do with our dogs. I've been seeing a lot of people talking about, well, the dog should be on a raw food diet. That's our assumption. Um and um, I'm not I'm not convinced that the medical science has demonstrated that dogs need to be on a raw food meat diet, which may cause them to well may or may not cause them to relieve more, or they need other things in their diet that may or may not cause them to relieve more. And I stand by the fact that um, I have in in my life had guide dogs that worked. The first one, uh, Squire, worked ten years. Holland worked thirteen and a half years. Klondike worked 10 years. Linny, my fourth guide dog, only worked three, but she contracted Lyme's disease just after we moved to New Jersey, although we didn't know it, and that morphed into a kidney disease. That was a problem. Roselle worked eight years, and she only retired because she contracted immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, which is a disease that humans and animal and dogs get, either from genetic conditions, which Roselle didn't have, or because they ingest some sort of toxin, which we think she did on September 11th, but even then she worked eight years. Meryl worked very short time uh, because she just became afraid of guiding, decided she didn't want to guide. My seventh guide dog, Africa, um, worked 10 years, and now I have Alamo. I've worked my dogs, and they've lasted a long time. Um, and I think that I am the biggest contributor, other than for health reasons with Linny and, and um, well, and Roselle and Merrill, possibly. But other than things that, that specifically happen with the dog, we're the biggest contributor to how long they work or don't work, depending on how much stress and fear we project, how confident we are as guide dog users, what we feed our dogs, that... Um, allows us to travel freely and not be overly fearful and worry. By the way, I've taken several of my guide dogs to the airport relieving areas inside of 
of airports. And I think only once, and I've done it just to, to see what the relieving areas are like, and also to give the dog a chance to be off harness and relieve. They don't. Yeah. They don't need to relieve. They don't. They don't like it. They just come back out and we go on our way. Um, so, you know, if that changes, it changes. But I will always monitor those kinds of things. But again, I think that these dogs are quite capable of doing a lot more than most of us think they can. Yep. Very good point as well. Some will disagree with me and and that's fine. But I've only got now, what, um, some... 57 years of guide dog work experience <laughs> to tell me um, <laughs> that that I do know something about what I'm saying. Indeed. I, it seems, <clears throat> might seem strange, you know, we travel with our dogs and we know very clearly, we, we know the process, but there are people who listen to this who maybe aren't as familiar with the concept of how a guide dog travels if traveling by, by air. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what happens once you're on the plane? Where does the dog sit? And how does it all happen? People always ask me when I'm traveling, well, where does your dog sit? And I say, well, he likes to just be strapped out on the wing. He likes the air <laughs> rushing through his fur. Um, I do not like bulkhead rows. <clears throat> I do not like sitting in the front row of the aircraft. And the reason I don't is it's a safety issue. First of all, these dogs can fit under the seats in front of us, even on small aircraft. We were on a pretty small aircraft this last week. Um, it's a safety issue. If you're sitting in the bulkhead row and there are turbulence, your dog can bounce around and you're not going to be able to easily restrain that dog. And I don't want anything that can potentially hurt my dog to keep me from flying. So while flight attendants always try to move me to the front row, oh, there's more room for your dog. Mm. Nuts. There is not more safety for my dog. There's less safety in the bulkhead row. So we sit in, even the second row is fine, but just not in the front row. I've taught my dogs to back in and go under the seat in front of me with their head coming out from under the seat and uh, using my feet for a pillow. It's good to be a pillow. <clears throat> um and I'm not talking about in first class, although I love to get upgraded as much as the next person. <laughs> but bottom line is that um, the dog will fit. Now, um, I am very fortunate, uh, having gotten my dogs from Guide Dogs for the Blind, we have harnesses that are outgrowths of the harnesses that Swiss Guide Dog School uses, so we can remove the handle yeah. without taking the whole harness off. I don't like to take the whole harness off because I want the dog to have the constant message that they're working. But I do take the handle off and I put it in the seat pocket. And then um, we we travel. Before I could take the handle off, I did as much as possible. And there were a couple of times that I had to take the harness off. But mostly, even then, I don't take the harness off. The dog will go under the seat with the harness handle on. But I, I can take the handle off and I choose to do that. So the dog goes under the seat in front of me. How does that work? Well, I've been on flights where people have uh, been sitting next to me and we've chatted the whole time. I got on first and uh, I happen to be in a window seat, although I prefer the aisle now. Um, and I got on first and I would be sitting in my seat. and We would be talking and we would land at the other end hours away. 
and I get my dog out to put the handle back on the harness and somebody says, you had a dog under the seat the whole time? I didn't even know there was a dog there. And they were sitting next to me the whole time, which may say something about their observation capabilities, <laughs> but it also says something about the dog and the dog's travel comfort level. Um, the dog just stays there and sleeps. Unless the dog thinks that uh, that they can come out and talk somebody into a few extra pets, oh, well, yes. um, and sometimes we allow that. <laughs> but but the bottom line is that they're very comfortable under those seats. There's no reason to sit in a bulkhead row. I know of hundred pound uh, Labrador Retrievers. I haven't had one, but others have, and who have sat in non bulkhead seats. There's a lot of room under there. We need to get over our own fears and think more practically and more logically and more systematically about what is best for the dog. And the best thing is a confined space, unless, again, there's a great deal of fear. And then I have to start to ask how much of that fear have we contributed to or created in the dog's mind? And I'm sounding like I'm being really hard on people, but I think I am because I've seen too many people who do too many things out of fear and make assumptions about their dogs. And so their dogs become acclimatized to doing something differently than they possibly can and, and be a lot more comfortable in doing it. Yeah, I think the, the point that you make about the, <clears throat> the turbulence and the way the dog can get thrown around um, in, if in a bulkhead seat is, that's a very good point. And I just in traveling myself, I know how often the bulkhead seats are the the seats on a longer distance, an international flight that people use to move from one side of the plane to the other. So even on that side, I can see the the, the, the validity for saying dog is probably going to be happier tucked under the seat and sleeping. And there's plenty of room for my feet and I don't need the long distance of a bulkhead seat for travel. So let somebody taller have it. Um, and, and there's no reason not to do that. Okay. So we've got onto the plane, we've traveled and the dog has slept most of the way because that's what they do <laughs> as Labradors and retrievers and, and the, the breeds that we generally use. On the other side, and I'm talking specifically here about international travel, what happens as you travel through customs and immigration, what kind of additional um, paperwork or what, what kind of additional steps are there if accompanied by a guide? It depends on the country. So let's, let's do New Zealand and then we'll do Japan. Um, and this is now from years ago, but it's what I recall from my experiences with New Zealand. Um, there were forms that needed to be filled out. The dog needed to be certified before we traveled. And it was really because of the fact that it was a guide dog um, and we were very visible. So the guide dog school, British guide dogs and the Royal New Zealand Foundation of the Blind had done a lot of work with the government officials. Um, they were expecting us. So there were papers that, that we had to carry and show Um my dog had been chipped and I actually carried a chip reader with me to read the chip uh, so that they could see that the dog had been chipped mm. uh, because I don't know that at that time the chips were so standardized that that everyone's chip reader would be able to read it. <laughs> so I carried a chip reader in and proved that that she had been chipped. Um, and then we got through customs 
well, let me rephrase that. We got through the process with the dog. I went through customs and immigration normally, um, but along the way did show to the agricultural people all the paperwork that we had to carry for Roselle. And then we were through. <clears throat> when, <clears throat> when we went to Japan, it was somewhat the same process. There was a little bit more requirement of an examination of the dog um, by a vet, um, which was done. And uh, again, the paperwork was was all in order. So we were able to go through and then we literally traveled all over Japan for, for 12 days <clears throat> without any difficulty. And then when we went back to get onto an aircraft, aircraft to come back to the United States, <clears throat> Again, there was a process to go through the, to make sure all the paperwork was correct and so on. And I had become knowledgeable enough to make sure that we we knew we had all the paperwork appropriately established. And then we were able to get on the plane and come back here. I think I keep hearing the same thing coming back to me in my mind. It's about preparation, research, and covering the bases before they become problems. Well, let's let's do it this way. Nobody's putting rules and regulations in place to prevent a blind person with a guide dog from going to a foreign country. True. Okay. They're not doing it to make life difficult for us. That's not what they're doing. They're making rules and regulations that they believe are necessary to protect their countries especially in a, in a rabies environment. Um, let me talk about Korea before I go on. They, that isn't a rabies-free country. And we went through just like coming into the United States. Oh, I had to show a rabies vaccination certificate and so on. Um, and, uh, and basically, as I recall, that was about it. Going into Korea was not difficult. <clears throat> going into Canada isn't difficult. Going into Ireland was somewhat like New Zealand and Japan. But um, but the reality is that uh, going to, to Korea was was very straightforward. The Netherlands was pretty straightforward as well. Um, but it's all about preparation. As I said, the rules aren't made up to prevent us and, and they're not made up to, because people are against us, but they are made. The rules are there. And so we need to be the ones as guests going into a country we need to be the ones to make sure that we understand the rules and that we abide by the rules. If we do that, and if we're cooperative, and, and frankly, if we project an image of wanting to be a good part of the process, then we're much more apt to have a good experience. If we go in saying, how dare you have all these special rules and how dare you not let me travel in your country just like I would in my own country with the Americans with Disabilities Act and so on. If we go in with a hostile environment, the people we interact with are going to be much more defensive. My personal belief is that all these people have a very thankless job to do. And one of the things that I've adopted as a rule in my own life ever since September 11th is that I've got to do everything I can to at least get these people to laugh once. <laughs> and um, I, I want them on my side and I will do anything that I can to help make the process easier. So when I go through um, 
into a foreign country or when I'm traveling even in, in the United States with my dog. Um, they don't know a lot about guide dogs. They don't know what we're supposed to do going through the portal. They, a lot of the TSA people still ask me, how do you want to work with your dog going mm -hmm. through? I tell them, this is what we'll do. Um, I will make my leash very long. I will tell my dog to sit. I will walk through because I won't set it off. I won't set off the metal detector, and I don't. <clears throat> After I go through, I will call the dog through. I'm holding the leash, and there's a little bit of metal at the end of the leash, but it's not enough to set off the detector. The dog will set it off, and then you're obligated to search that dog, but just keep in mind that the dog does not like short searches. She wants an hour, or <laughs> he wants an hour-long search. And the more you search, the better he'll like it. You know, and, and it's all about making them comfortable. Yeah. But the other part of it is the dogs do like the long searches, so it's okay. So we do that, and the dog comes through. Um, in the case of going into another country, you know, I may also ask exactly what what's your familiarity? How can we best make this work yeah. all the way around? But we are we are not or should not be part of the problem. And so we need to be open and we need to recognize that not everyone reacts and does things the same way we do. <clears throat> A lot of times <clears throat> people won't know about guide dogs. The government people won't know a lot about guide dogs. <clears throat> and they're very nervous, not only because it's a guide dog uh, and they don't know a lot about it, but they don't know how to deal with blind people. Yeah. We need to be part of the educational process to help them too. And the reality is that through our engagement, it's going to set up an expectation of what they might experience the next time they encounter a guide dog or someone who's visually impaired. And if that's been a bad experience, they're not going to be very keen to help the next person. If if we come through and we're, we have a vision impairment and we're a problem, you're absolutely right. If we come through and we have a vision impairment and we make their experience good, then they're going to be a little bit friendlier and a little bit more relaxed for the next person. Yeah. I want to turn to something. It, it might seem something of a whimsical question, but have you ever had the sense or that your, your dog has suffered from jet lag? I've been asked that before, and um, no, not really. I haven't really seen um, a dog come through and and just be incredibly tired or whatever, mainly because they probably sleep on the planes <laughs> more than, than we do. Um, or I sleep through their jet lag because I have it. Uh, but no, not really. Um, I haven't really seen a lot of that specifically in an unusual situation. These dogs love to work so much. Yeah. And there is a lot of downtime. And so as a result, um, when we're on the aircraft there, they'll sleep and, and do whatever. So uh, they come out the other end just fine. That's true. And dogs sleep during the day as well as they do at night. So I, I can... Yeah probably see that it will be easier for them to adjust to differences in time zones. But I was very really, flexible like that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I was quite curious about that question though. I would have had lots of follow-up questions if you'd answered differently. So let, <laughs> let's go then to a, a different question. If you're traveling to a country or even a hotel chain that aren't really familiar or used to having guide dogs on the premises, 
How do you manage that situation and what accommodations do you like to have in place with that? Okay. Um, within the United States and outside the United States. So within the United States, of course, there, there are specific laws. And I will, if I start to see resistance or a problem, I will be pretty firm with people at hotels and so on. No, my dog is allowed in. Um, all I ask is a place where I can take the dog to relieve. We will clean up after the dog. <clears throat> Sometimes that can be very awkward um, just because we're in the middle of a city and there aren't really good places yeah. to relieve. And then we'll go to curbs and so on. In a foreign country, I will learn the laws before we go so that I know what um, and how much I can push if I need to. And if I'm going to a country and going to a hotel, um, typically I haven't had a lot of problems about being able to take my dog into a hotel. <clears throat> but I also, um, but I also do alert ahead of time, especially when I'm going to another country and I and I want to make sure I know about the laws. I will. I will contact the hotel and make sure that they know that I'm coming with a guide dog. And generally we've been uh, pretty welcomed. So we haven't had a lot of problems with that. Again, I, th I think every situation is different. There may very well be some people who may decide they're going to be very uncomfortable about um, a dog being in the hotel. And then it's up to me to make them very comfortable. It's no different whether it's here or in a foreign country, discomfort is discomfort. And I have to, especially when I'm in another place where the laws may be different, I may need to spend more time really educating and helping those people to be comfortable with my dog being around. <clears throat> and what usually happens that by about the second or third day where I am somewhere is they want to treat the dog a whole lot better than me anyway. So, you know, um, it's the eyes. On yeah, the dog. it is. But we, get, but we get, but we get, we generally get a lot of cooperation. Again, it's our attitude that determines a lot of what occurs. Yeah. So I think really what you're saying in this situation, as with pretty much any situation as a, a guide dog and, and and a human partner, it really is about the preparation, knowing the situation, doing your research, and just making people comfortable if they're not feeling that level of comfort. So I think it is the same, you know, whatever environment you're in, whether it's traveling around your own neighborhood and you meet someone who's not as comfortable with dogs and for some reason has to engage or whether you are in a foreign country where they might not be as familiar with the concept of a guide dog. It really Here's is. the other part. Go ahead. I was say, it really is the ability to communicate, to help people feel comfortable, and to know what the situation is in terms of laws. But here's the other part of that. If you get that amount of knowledge, you too will be more comfortable. Yes. Um, and that also will help as you're trying to help make other people more comfortable. So you need to learn to be comfortable as you're going into these situations, whoever you are. So 
comfort is is all around. The more comfortable you are, the more stress-free your dog will be because they feed off of you. And the more clearly you will be able to think about any situations that you go into. And the result of that is the better experience you'll have. So true. Michael, if people would like to reach out to you to find out more about your your story or about your work, how can they find you? The easiest way is to visit www.michaelhingson.com. That's www.michaelhing, like George, son.com, www.michaelhingson.com. They can reach out to me at info at michaelhingson.com. That's email address. People are welcome to reach out. I'm glad to answer any questions. Love to visit with people as much as I can. Um, I will respond to any email that I get. May or may not happen instantly, just depending on meetings and other things. You know how those company meetings go. <laughs> but I will um, I will respond and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do that. So if I can assist in any way, I would uh, I would like to do that. And I hope people will go out and buy Thunderdog. Um, it's available, as I said, wherever books are, are available. Uh, also, we wrote a follow-up book, Running with Roselle, which was really more intended for children, but I find more adults buy it than kids. <laughs> it's more about my life growing up and Roselle's life growing up and then how we met and so on. So those two are are um, are out. We're starting to work on a third, but um, a little early yet to talk about. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Thunderdog was a number one New York Times bestseller, and it will probably be on the list again in the future. Um, but people, I hope, will get that. And uh, and people always reach out and say, I read your book. And there's information about how to reach us in the book as well. And I've read your book and thank you. And, and again, I respond to those sorts of things as well. And, it's, and of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and so on as well and all those places. And I will definitely recommend Thunderdog. It's a great read. It really I appreciate is. that. So, Michael, there's a final question. And I, I suppose anyone who's listened to this should probably already know the answer to this question. But what advice would you have for someone who is traveling for the first time doing a long distance air journey with their guide dog? Relax. <laughs> don't be nervous um if you do everything we've talked about today then you will go armed with the knowledge and the tools to have a good trip i know it will seem a little bit daunting that first time that you travel with your dog especially on a long distance flight but you know what you have control over your fears don't let your fears control you relax have a good time. If you do the preparations that we talked about, if you follow the steps we've discussed, you'll have a great time. And you know what? If you have a great time, your dog will have a great time. And there's nothing more important than the two of you having a great time together. That's so true. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I've really gone a lot from the conversation. and. Well, if I can just put a word and say, I can't wait to read the third book when it comes out. Well, we'll see what happens. We're, we're working toward it. It'll, it'll be a while yet, but we're working on it and I'm excited about it. Great. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on A Different Way of Traveling. Well, thank you. It's um, my pleasure. And, and I look forward to hearing from your listeners. And anything we can do to help, let me know. And if you'd like us to come back, glad to do that as well. Today's travel quote comes from Aaron Lauritsen, who said, explore, experience, then push beyond. I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. And remember to hop onto Amazon or onto the order form on my website, loisstrachen.com, to order your copy of my new book, Pause for Thought, Seeing the World Through the Eyes of a Guide Dog. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. That's it from us for this time. You can find Accessible South Africa on the web at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za, on Facebook and Instagram at Accessible South Africa, and on Twitter at Accessible SA. You can also email us at podcast at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za. Editing by Craig Stratton using Hinderberg software. Our theme music is by Lu Chil Chow, based on a motive by Lois Stratton. Credits read by Musa E. Zulu. Thank you for joining us on A Different Way of Traveling. We'll see you next time. Until then, happy travels.